Hello, CyberPals. This is the Garbage Podcast, a show about technology, much of it garbage. I'm Brandon Mercer. I'm from Ohio, and I am a software developer by trade. I've been working in the healthcare industry now for about the past seven years, and um, I've also worked in the financial services sector, building web applications and doing application development in those spaces. Um, I'm also a contributor to the OpenBSD project where I've worked on some ARM stuff, getting OpenBSD to run on things like the Chromebook and, and that kind of stuff. So, I'm Joshua Stein, an independent software developer from Chicago. I make an app called Pushover. I'm also a developer for the OpenBSD project, and I run a link aggregation website called Lobsters. Very cool. And the reason we're here is we wanted to put together a podcast and just kind of talk about technology. I think there's a lot of things that are introduced and everybody adopts them and starts absorbing them and they start using them. And uh, a lot of those things are really novel and some of those things really are terrible. And we would like to um, open up some avenues to talk about those types of things. And we want to hear from you guys. We want to hear um, what you're excited about, uh, what's frustrating you, and we want to get your comments and feedback about what we should talk about. And if you want to see us cover something on this podcast, let us know and uh, we'll see if we can uh, do some research and give you our take on it. So check us out at garbage.fm on the web and garbage.fm on Twitter if you want to uh, send us something. So what do we have on the plate for discussion tonight? I guess the devices within reach uh, of me right now are the new Nexus 5X. So what's up with the the Nexus 5X? Um, I have the previous Nexus 5 as well. Just to compare the two, the Nexus 5X is slightly taller, slightly wider. It's about the same thickness. The screen is really nice, really bright. feels kind of plasticky and cheap, though. It has this, like the the old Nexus 5 had sort of a rubber coating on the back. Yeah. This one has more of a smoother plastic-y feel. Kind of feels cheap. I don't know why they went with that. It has a new fingerprint reader on the back, which I don't particularly care for. I don't really think that I have small hands, but the way that I naturally grip the phone, the... Uh, fingerprint reader is kind of high. So you have to like stretch a finger to unlock it and then move your hand back down for the normal way that uh, at least I hold the phone. Yeah, that's pretty cool. How long have you had that now? So I got this two days ago. Yeah, I was going to say they just started shipping not long ago. Yeah, it shipped from uh, somewhere in Illinois. So I'm in Chicago, so it uh, got here really fast. But the problem is that the power adapter that comes with it is the new USB Type-C, Yeah. but the cable that connects the phone to the charger, the USB, it's USB-C on both ends. So if you want to use it to connect to your computer to um, do any development with like ADB or anything, you have to have USB-C on your computer or else you need to (laughs) buy a new cable. That seems really weird. I mean, you buy a five or six or seven hundred dollar phone, and they don't have a cable to connect you to. But I guess at this point, it's a legacy computer. But that just seems kind of cheap. Yeah, I mean, I, I know we're supposed to be transitioning everything to USB-C, but um, it would make more sense to just make the one end of the cable the USB Type A and one USB Type C, 
And I even went to Best Buy to try and buy a USB-C to USB-A cable. And of course, they don't have any yet because, you know, nobody uses USB-C yet. Of course. So I had to order one from Amazon and wait for it to ship. So I finally got that today and I was able to hook up the phone to my computer, start doing development with it. Yeah, now that came with the Marshmallow release, which I've heard Mm -hmm. a lot of good things about. And I actually don't have that yet, and I didn't download the preview. So what's that like? So far, it seems pretty similar to what whatever the previous version was that I have on my Nexus 5. What phone do you have? Um, I have the Nexus 6. Okay. So you're still on the, what is it, 5.1? Yeah, it's 5.1.1. And um, I'm also using Project 5, so I don't know how different it is, but it's the pure Nexus or pure Google experience, I guess they call it. That's the Project Fi? Yeah, the Project Fi is like the Google's wireless service, and it makes use of Sprint, and it makes use of T-Mobile. And the cool thing about the hardware is it's got radios for all the LTE bands, and it's got some new, like, a different type of LTE, and I don't know the specifics of it, but I guess it roams across all sorts of uh, LTE networks and does 3G and all that other fun stuff. And I guess it also uh, roams onto Verizon and AT&T where Sprint and T-Mobile have roaming contracts with Verizon and AT&T, which is nice. So I actually wound up uh, taking that to um, to Sweden not long ago, and it worked great. Um, you take it off airplane mode when you get to the airport, and it says, hey, welcome to Germany. You're going to be billed at $10 a gigabyte or something for international data. And the texts just work and the data just works. And I didn't have to do anything. I think I hit four countries in that trip and it just worked. I think it cost me less than a dollar for data in all those four countries. Wow. So what kind of SIM does do you have in the phone? Yeah, they have their own SIM. And yeah. Yeah, it's just some micro SIM and there's only one of them in there. Uh, I don't know if there's anything special about it. I just know that, you know, it's a Project 5 SIM and that's all there is to it, so... As far as the Nexus or the uh, Android 6, I haven't really noticed too much different about it. Yeah. It has the new permission model, which is why I'm uh, updating my app to use that, but it doesn't really... Because I think the runtime permissions are only for certain ones, so it's not like every permission that an app needs. Ah, yeah. I guess none of the ones that my app needs are worth asking me about. Yeah, it seems kind of backwards then, I guess, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you don't want to have your bank getting access to, like, pictures and SMS messages and all that other kind of stuff, you know, you should be able to control that. But if it's only what that particular app provider allows you to control, then it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, and, you know, backwards compatibility, like, how long are they going to... And my app still has to support Android 2.3, which is pretty awful, but... It only does the runtime permissions if you target the newest Android SDK. Okay. So every app that's in the App Store or in the Play Store that hasn't been updated won't prompt you for anything. So I guess if you want to keep making a malicious app, just don't target the latest SDK, which doesn't make sense. Yeah. I think there needs to be, um, I guess, making it available is one thing, and they have to give people some time to update their apps. But I hope that there's a little bit more aggressive timeline and 
you know, letting people have control over their phones. I know that some people are going to say, what do I know? I mean, the Windows user experience is like, hey, this thing asked me to do something and I just let it. And I think that, you know, for people who are on mobile phones, they are probably about the same level of skill. But I know that there's more technical people who are using their phones on a regular basis and they say, no, I don't want to have uh, microphone access. No, I don't want to have video access. No, I don't want to have GPS access. And they might be paring that stuff down. But I think app makers are going to have to find a way to make their app work when those things are disabled. And the example that comes to my mind is like um, Strava or some sports tracking app. And you start it up and it says, hey, I need access to GPS and it's turned off right now. And maybe that's the same model they use for these types of things. Hey, I need access to your microphone right now and you have it disabled. Can I use it? I think that would be a good model to use, but I don't know that it'll work or how it's going to look the way, I mean, how it's going to get rolled out. That's the thing that I'm not so sure on. Yeah, I mean, there's so many apps, even popular ones, that haven't really been updated to um, target any of the newer versions of Android because you still have to support so many old devices. So there's like, at least with my app pushover, there's users still on 2.3. There's some that are on, or a lot of them are on 4. So it's like there wasn't really any point to updating anything to use 5 because now everybody's on 6. So you either have like everybody at the low end and then you have the new users that bought new phones and stuff at the high end, but most of the users are in the middle. So you can't really do anything. You can't do much with any of the new features without cutting out all of the older users. Yeah, I I wonder about that too because are there security updates being applied to those older applications or those older uh, operating systems? Uh, no. Yeah. And so like one of the new features in Android six is when you go into the about phone menu and the settings, you get this Android security patch level and a date that shows you the latest time that you got a security update, Yep. which is great because you're on Android six, which means, you know, you're probably running a Nexus device anyway. Right. So you're always going to get security upgrades anyway. That was never an issue for Nexus devices. It's all the other phones that are still running old versions that will never even get this security patch level menu item that you need to be worried about. Exactly, because the carriers want you to buy new hardware, and they mm-hmm. don't want it, to... It's a cost to them to upgrade uh, operating systems or patches or whatever on old hardware and old operating systems, so it's not advantageous to do it. They're never gonna. It's never going to happen. And it puts the consumer in a really bad place because they've paid for two years of usage on this phone and they're not going to get support or patches for that two years. It just doesn't seem like that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. So I don't really have much on this phone yet. I guess I'm just not really a fan of the Google ecosystem. Like I don't use Gmail. I don't use Hangouts. Yeah. I don't trust Google to like I don't have any of the settings in Android turned on that like back up all your stuff to Google. Not that I really think Google's going to look into my data, but I just don't want all that up there. Right. And at least like on iOS, my normal phone is an iPhone 6S and you can just back it up over Wi-Fi to iTunes on my laptop. 
So I do that instead of having to put everything in iCloud. Yeah. So when I get a new phone or I need to fix something, I can just restore it from iTunes. So I got this phone, the Nexus 5X. It downloaded all the apps that I had installed on my old device, but there's no uh, data or settings restored. Yeah. So it's like, well, what was the point of that? <laughs> so, you know, I don't don't really have much here because I don't really feel like going into every app and logging in and changing all the settings back. Yeah. I did notice that when uh, it was installing all of those apps the, for the first time, the device got very hot. And I don't know if it's because of this, the plastic back that it, you know, doesn't uh, deal with heat very well, but it uh, was getting quite hot. Now, was it charging at the same time? No, it was not. Huh, that's kind of strange. That has a pretty powerful uh, CPU on it, though, doesn't it? Yeah, and I thought maybe because um, Android 6 uh, does encryption by default, yep. so I thought maybe it was trying to encrypt at the same time, but it I'm pretty sure it like comes encrypted already. And then you just, when you set a pin or whatever, it changes the encryption key. Okay. But I could be wrong because iPhones work a similar way where it's just always encrypted. You don't have to worry about turning it on or anything. Yeah. Now I'm the opposite. I, um, I subscribe to the Google services. I use Gmail. I let them back up my photos and from a user experience standpoint, I think it works well from uh, where my data is going and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not too pleased with it. It's just, uh, there's just too much data being analyzed and sold and bought and whatever these days that, you know, I'm trying to come up with a better solution where I can back up my phone and my data in a way that I control. And if I want to back it up someplace in a, you know, in a service, by all means, let me do it. But right now, I think I've maxed out my 15 gigs of you know free storage from videos and pictures and stuff, and I want to find a way to back up my Android device um, on my own. Music and pictures being the, the two biggest things. I mean, that's most of what I use it for. And um, I'm actually, I want to do a little bit of research into that because, like you said, I don't want to have my data going to Google anymore unless it's, you know, some random junk that I'm just using. But um, as a whole, as a practice, I, I think that uh, it's better not to be doing that. And I think it's better not to be syncing with their services, but I've done it for however many years now. So, Yeah. I was actually using uh, CalDev and CardDev. Yep. So there are like like service providers that you install through Google Play, and then it can just sync your contacts and your calendars to your own server. Yep. So I was doing that, but it didn't really work well or at all. I can't remember on iOS, so I just started using iCloud syncing. Yep. And then on um, Android, you can do you can, the guy that made those CalDev and CardDev apps just made ones that target um, iCloud. So they work the same way. You can just sync your iCloud data to an Android phone. Yeah. So you still have all your data in the in the interclouds, but as far as um, music and photos and stuff like that, I don't really know what to do on Android. Well, of course, you know this is a brand new Nexus 5X, and the most you can get is 32 gigs. 
I think. Okay, yeah. And let me just double check that because I got whatever the maximum was. Oh, yeah. It's 32 gigs. And that's the highest you can get in 2015. Yeah, and plus you cannot add uh, external storage to that. Right, because they want you to put everything in the cloud. Yep, that's exactly right. So that's kind of silly, but I mean, it's a nice phone for the price. It's probably a, a good upgrade from the Nexus 5. I think the Nexus 6P that just came out has a lot higher quality, though, with a metal case and everything. Yeah, that's what I went for. Um, and I know that those have started to ship, and I know that they're ready, uh, getting ready to fill in all the orders that um, people have placed. So hopefully I'll have uh, my hands on mine before too long here. But, um, yeah, I went I went with that for my next Google Fi phone, and I'm curious to see how it does. I had to go to Best Buy to try and find a USB-C cable. Yeah. And while I was there, I went and... Um, I don't know if you saw this uh, post on Lobsters the other day about Windows laptops need better engineering, not better marketing. Um, I don't think I did. What is it talking about? It was a link to The Verge or something, so it was just some guy ranting. But it was basically saying that Windows laptops have never had good trackpads and they need to invest the time to figure that stuff out instead of trying to come out with like 10 different laptops every year that fold three different ways and all that other stuff. Because huh. it was kind of linking about the, or linking to the um, the new Apple mouse that they like spent, I don't know how many hours of engineering time to make it sound good. Because <laughs> it didn't sound right, I guess, when they changed to um, the lithium ion battery. Huh. And so I was just saying that like Windows uh, computer manufacturers never do that kind of stuff. They just move on and their margins are so low anyway that they couldn't afford to spend all that engineering time. So anyway, so I was at Best Buy and I was walking around the laptop area and I just started like typing on each of the laptops that they had and like clicking on the trackpads. And there was not one laptop there that had anywhere like remotely decent of a la- of a trackpad. Yeah. Like, you just click on it, and it either feels like mush, or it's, like, super plasticky and loud. And it's, you know, something you have to click on, like, hundreds of times a day. Yeah, you're going to spend nine hours a day on this thing. Yeah. Why don't any of these companies spend the time to make that stuff sound right? Yeah. Or even just ergonomics, too. I mean, uh, buttons, those squishy buttons are ten times harder to press than a mechanical switch. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was my uh, complaint as I went through Best Buy. F. And of course, they didn't have a USB-C cable. <laughs> of course. You know, talking about keyboards and experience, um, I've been kind of, I, I won't say spoiling myself, but taking care of my experience on my computer. I mean, I, I work in software development, so I'm typing, you know, nine hours a day or more. And one of the things that I was having issues with is carpal tunnel. And I'm sure that people have, you know, who do this repetitive motion stuff all day long, they run into it. And I was okay for a long, long time. And then, you know, I think it was like a year and a half ago, my wrists really started to bother me again. And I don't know what it was exactly. So I built an ErgoDox keyboard. And, you know, I picked out my own switches. I put the keys that I use for shortcuts where I wanted them and where they made the most sense. 
And the idea behind this keyboard is great. Put the keys um, in a natural hand position and let the user, you know, adjust the layout to their preferences. But here's my only thing that I kind of look at like it's kind of silly is in order for a developer to get what, what they need, I had to um, buy parts from like four different locations and solder together this keyboard and write my own firmware. And, um, you know, and that was the ideal keyboard for me. And I mean, I think it winds up costing between two or $300 to do all that. You know, in 2015, with the amount of interface and user experience stuff that people do, they should have worked on this keyboard quite a bit more. And, you know, the ErgoDocs, it takes a little while to get, you know, your fingers used to typing on it because the keys are uh, straight up and down rather than at a slant. And, you know, mechanical switches also help. I've got O-rings underneath, so the, the strike at the bottom of the uh, key press is, is a little bit dampened. And then, you know, the, the software development stuff, um, I have my keys for common things in a comfortable position rather than, you know, where they are on a ever-changing Windows layout or 104 key layout. I mean, every keyboard I get has the stuff in different places. So, but anyway, I, I like it and I think it's good, but it's kind of sad that you're, you're exactly right. We don't have anything accessible in 2015 that a developer can go out and write code on and enjoy the experience all day long um, without having to build it themselves. Yeah, it's pretty weird. And I think, you know, if you posted that on Hacker News, people would just say like, oh, just use, you know, a, a five-year-old ThinkPad. Right. And it's like, well, that's great. But if you actually want, you know, modern hardware with a battery that lasts more than four hours, you're kind of screwed. Yep. Or if you want a machine that like you can't hear the fan, you know, all day. and Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little torn with that too, because I think that people do make um, I think the Apple hardware does a good job in a lot of places, but they have shortcomings too. And some of my day is spent working on OpenBSD and Apple hardware doesn't run OpenBSD like OpenBSD runs on, you know, Lenovo's or other things. And that's, that's changing of course, but you know, some of the key keyboard shortcuts still are in weird places and they're a little bit different to type on than you get used to on your, ThinkPad or whatever. Yeah, and the new uh, Apple hardware, they seem to be ruining the keyboards with this really short key travel, like on the new, as it's called, the MacBook One, um, and even the new uh, Bluetooth keyboard that they have for the new iMac, they've shortened the key travel. I don't know why they insist on doing that. I haven't typed on the new ones yet. Um, I don't know what it's like, so I can't really speak about it, but I had the little... Uh, Mac keyboard that was like the aluminum with the little chiclets and it was decent. Yeah, that's like the same keyboard that they've had on the laptops for a while and now they're changing it to a really short one. I bought the uh, the MacBook One, used it for about a day and had to return it because I couldn't stand typing on the keyboard. Huh. The, uh, the key travel is so short that um, at least the way I type, I kept bottoming out on the keys. Yeah you like get this vibration that goes up through your fingers and it starts to hurt after a while. Yeah. So I guess the solution is to learn to type softer, but I've been typing for quite a while, so I'd rather not have to relearn how to type. Yeah, for sure. 
yeah, people don't think about those things, you know, until you do them for nine hours a day. And that's like, I wanted to put these O-rings on the bottom of my keycaps. And everybody's like, what is that O-ring going to do? And I said, when that key bottoms out, it, it uh, absorbs some of that bounce back and that feedback and it gives it a, a more natural feel. And mm-hmm. until you type on it, you just have no appreciation for what that feels like, but it's a significant difference. What uh, what key switches are you running? Um, I have the Cherry MX Blues. Uh, so it's loud. It's um, it's not actually too bad. The PCB that the switches are mounted into sits on a, an acrylic sheet, so the switch itself is supported by the acrylic, and it takes some of the sound away. And um, also, the keycaps that I have are not the ABS plastic. They're not real light. They're um, the PBT, I think is what it's called, and it's a little bit um, more solid of a plastic, and so um, that helps, and then the O-rings dampening the bottom help as well with the sound. It's it's not too bad, but it definitely has a click to it. Have you seen that, that keyboard that, it was either on Kickstarter or something like that, it was, it looks like the ErgoDox, but it's made out of wood, I think it was. Yeah, I have. And it has like the very curved hand positions i guess yeah and they have a little um i think it's like a mouse i don't know what the word is almost like the trackpad the little rubber nub is on the think pads but they have something under there for your thumb so you can kind of control the mouse from there as well i think what was the name of that um keyboard.io oh yeah i remember this one because um i think harper was in the video that they had I think they're doing what you're talking about. They're investing time and research into what uh, what a typist or what a developer or someone using a keyboard needs from the from a typist or uh, from a keyboard. And they've been through a few revisions now, and they I think they've really refined the experience. Um, I actually went to they were doing like a, a tour. They took this around the country and they made stops and let people get their hands on it and try it out. And you just had to sign up beforehand and say, hey, I'd like to try this. And they'd tell you where they were going to be. And then you got to um, you got to try it out. And I wound up getting the flu that day or something horrible. But uh, they were in my area, and I was going to go give it a shot. But this is a really, really well-thought-out project, and I'm excited to see where it goes. It might be a little bit too hip and too trendy for some people's taste, but they are trying to do a really good job, and I'm impressed with what I've seen so far. Hopefully someday it'll just be called a keyboard, and it won't be some hipster, you know, Kickstarter kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, so one thing I did have on my radar um, that's kind of interesting, there's um, something cool happening uh, in OpenBSD. It started off as something called Tame, and then it got renamed to something called Pledge. And basically the idea is when these programs start up and they run, a program does a whole bunch of stuff when it starts up, and then it kind of gets into a little bit more of a loop cycle where it's just kind of doing something. And the idea behind this Pledge is that when the program starts, it needs permissions to do a lot of things, but then after that, you can kind of uh, limit the scope of what that application needs to do. And so what Pledge does is it says, these are the things that this application is allowed to do. 
And so when you run your program, it says, uh, like, for instance, if you're running an FTP client, and that FTP client goes to make a DNS call and then open a socket or whatever your FTP client needs to do, um, Pledge says, yep, you're allowed to do these things. But if it tries to start uh, reading off the disk and it doesn't have permission to do that, it will actually kill the program. So we've been going through the tree and uh, there's been a lot of updates to software in the tree to make this kind of additional security measure or implement this additional security measure. And uh, one of the other OpenBSD developers, Aaron Bieber, took it a step further and he implemented it in Node, the JavaScript library. So he's got this thing called on GitHub called Node Pledge and you have to run it on OpenBSD. It won't work on Linux or Windows or anything else. But basically, um, you just use the Node Package Manager to install Node Pledge, and then you um, you require it in the top of your JavaScript application, and then you initialize your pledge with what the application is allowed to do. Um, and he's got an example on GitHub of how this works. And the example he gives, you know, the application tries to do something that it's not allowed to do, and it shows um, that the application is being killed, the JavaScript is being stopped or whatever because it's trying to perform syscall 8 and it's not allowed to do that or whatever. So kind of interesting how that's evolved and moved, um, but it's a very low-level technical thing. So I don't know um, that people past developers will ever appreciate that it's there. <laughs> The, uh, the Node.js pledge thing, so that's uh, runtime in Node, like in your Node script, right? Not, this isn't pledging the Node interpreter. So like every script that you would write that uses Node, you can have a different pledge um, yeah, that's exactly, call? Yeah, that's exactly right. So if, you, if you're making a, a Node server, you would say, oh, the server has, you know, this pledge can do standard IO, RPath. Uh, right path and IOCTL. I think it's every application gets its own is the way that's meant to work. Hmm, that's pretty cool. I should look into um, doing that in Ruby. I have a uh, secret Ruby script that I load into all my Rails apps yeah. that are running in production that basically acts like a tripwire. So if there is ever a an exploit for or a vulnerability in Ruby on Rails and an exploit tries to run um, certain code that none of my normal Rails apps would ever run, um, it kind of does the same thing and trips it and kills the process after freaking out. Ah, that's really cool. Yeah. But it would be cool to just make that a, a pledge call. Yeah, I wonder how that would look because, I mean, it, at this point, there are, I think, a couple hundred applications that have been pledged. So... It's starting to look a little bit more mature now. I just looked at a couple things. Uh, Theo sent out an email with uh, doing the login stuff. And, uh, you know, he said, hey, I tested a couple of these and whatever. And I took a look at the login YubiKey stuff. I actually just committed that tonight. Um, and, it, and it's really simple how it works. Uh, I like how it's set up and seems to work pretty well. And I guess, so the idea behind this is you can always take away an application's ability. So for instance, um, you start off with a pledge that's a little bit broad, 
And depending on what code path you go down or where you make it to in the code, you might want to take away some more stuff from that pledge or make it, I guess, taking away is the wrong word. You want to restrict even more and you can do that, but you can never get it back. Um, and I think that's a, a design feature of the way pledge works as well. Oftentimes that's how applications tend to be used is upfront. They're setting up a bunch of stuff and doing a bunch of stuff. And then the further along they go, the less and less they need. And so if they start to do bad things where they shouldn't be doing bad things, um, it's actually a good time to kill it. And I think that's the whole idea behind this pledge thing is to pare down what they have access to in different points in the application. Theo's been pasting some dumps of like PS and it shows the current pledge settings for each process. Is that in the tree or no? Um, I don't know if it is or not. Because it's kind of cool to just list all your processes and you can see, you know, uh, 80% of them are pledged and they have these limited permissions left. Yeah, I wish I had my laptop fired up in front of me right now, but um, I don't. But yeah, I, I don't know if that's in there or not. I have a snapshot from the 20th and I didn't really see it, but in the messages, you're seeing like pledge stuff come out there. Hey, uh, this application made syscall whatever, and it's telling you what the syscall was and whatever, but I didn't look in PS or anything like that. All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up for this week. Um, if any of you listening have uh, something you want want us to look into or talk about uh, next week's show, hit us up at garbage.fm or garbagefm on Twitter. Brandon, where can people find you on the interwebs? I'm on Twitter and I'm on Google+. My Twitter handle is nomercymod, <laughs> kind of a heavy handle. And then on Google+, I'm on there as well. You should be able to find me without too much ado. Cool. Uh, I'm on the web at jcs.org and Twitter at jcs.